name. Say it. What's your name? Um, but for those of you um, who saw me come up here just now and then you saw this bright shirt and, and saw these glasses and then earlier looked in your program and the schedule of events and said, hey, I thought Miley was speaking on Sunday. <laughs> your eyes do not deceive you. <laughs> and she did not disappoint tonight. Um, <laughs> you either, honey. <laughs> um, so my name is Eric, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, so uh, thank you, uh, Teresa, and the steering committee, and the subcommittee co-chairs, and the advisory board for having a new, um, another living sober. Uh, I know how much work it goes into um, putting this on each year. And so it's really a miracle when it all comes together at the last minute. Um, um, so the reason I'm speaking is because I was the chair last year. I just want to clear that up. Um, <laughs> I don't want you to think there's any funny business, but um, so the speaker co-chairs actually consist of someone who's been one of my best friends in recovery and then also uh, someone I have the great honor of sponsoring. Um, and I am amused that they have signs that basically tell me when to shut up. <laughs> and um, uh, Michael, if you want, uh, that's my sponsee, you can bring them to the next time we meet. <laughs> All right. No, for use on me. Okay, so. Uh, <laughs> so I'll tell you a little bit about me. Um, uh, I'm just over eight years sober. I turned eight this summer. Um, I am 38 years old. Um, I am a Bay Area native, but I'm from San Jose. Um, let's see, um, I have a sponsor. I sponsor five guys right now, two of which are in the steps, two have completed it in the last year, and uh, one is on his way to starting them with me. Um, and I have a home group, which actually meets tonight, and I'm not there. Um, and I have a commitment at that home group, which is covered. Um, um, so about me. So um, growing, growing up in San Jose. So I mentioned, I may have mentioned, that I'm an only child. Um, that is a big part of my story, you know, like I think uh, one of the things that I hear a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous is this, this, I, this aloneness, this deep aloneness, um, and when you're an only child, you like kind of born with it, you know, um, and weirdness. Um, my uh, family is also really small, so I just have my, it's just me and my mom. Um, when I was growing up, my dad was a part of that. Um, actually, I'll tell you a little bit about my mom. Uh, to give you an idea of what kind of stock I come from. So she um, moved to San Jose in the early 70s from Florida. She worked in the Candy Space Center. Um, and she was, she, I, I see pictures of her and my aunt, who I call Auntie Sugar. And she was wearing go-go dresses. And she was, the reason she had to move is because she was busted for selling marijuana on the Space Center grounds. And they told her to leave the state. 
So she moved here, um, or to San Jose, and she lived in Japantown, and she, um, Japantown's a little, um, little, very small neighborhood in San Jose, and um, she started drinking at the local fish market with a bunch of old Japanese fishermen, one of whom was my grandfather, and she told him it was winter time, and she told my grandfather like her heater was broken, and he sent her son over to fix her heater, and that's how I was born. Uh, so my mom wasn't supposed to have kids, so um, she decided that she'd keep me, but she wasn't in a, it wasn't a loveless, or it wasn't a, there wasn't love in that situation. She stayed with my father, um, but she, she tolerated him, and he was an alcoholic. Um, it was a, uh, you know, I grew up with a lot of abuse in my, in my family. Um, and because it was so small, it was like really like closed off. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of people that were experiencing that. So I always felt like weird that this stuff was going on. And it was to both me and my mom. Uh, it was very violent. There were like broken arms and bloody clothes and um, all that. And that was the first like 11 years of my life. Um, the weekends at my house, I was... Uh, the bartender. Uh, that's what the, that's what the you do. The, when you have kids and you're just like laying around and drinking, you just kind of send them to, to to get the new glass of wine or the new beer. And actually, um, those are my first drinks. You know, I, I barely even remember them. They're not like um, profound uh, moments of of fuzzy warm alcohol. It's nothing like that. It's just like I get to taste, you know, my dad's beer or my mom's beer. Um, when I was um, 11, so my mom was, uh, I'm totally, totally telling the business here, she was, she was having an affair, um, and she didn't come home one night, and my dad was taking care of me, and I was sleeping, but uh, when she came home in the morning, she woke me up, and she said, uh, we need to leave, and what he had done in the middle of the night was that he had he had emptied the contents of the refrigerator. He had torn up all our furniture, and and then he had left in our coffee table like eight knives standing straight up. And um, we left that day, and then the next school day, she took me out of school, and then we kind of fled from that situation. Um, and that was a huge, huge traumatic memory because I remember it. I, I used to think about it every day. You know, um, it was just one of those kinds of things where I saw it really young and, and, and it really traumatized me. Um, that's not why I drank. That's just the environment that I came from. I, you know, I come from a long line of alcoholics. Um, I was predisposed to drink. It was normal for me to drink. Um, so when me and my mom fled, she also went through like a midlife crisis. And um, she told me at that time that I was old enough to take care of myself. Um, and she went and became kind of like this person who stayed at bars all the time. Um, and she actually didn't come home very often. So it was just me and my house. Um, again, that's not why I drank, I'm just an alcoholic, but um, it did make it easy to drink from a very young age. Um, so I actually became uh, someone uh, in high school who had people over <laughs> because you could do whatever you want at my house, right? Um, 
So, uh, you know, I became a very experimental kid. I remember um, actually in high school, so it was also gay, so there was all that stuff that was going on, right? And um, I was bullied in high school a little bit. Um, but I also had this best friend, her name was Vicky, and she was um, she's beautiful, and guys liked her. And so sometimes I got away with it because they wanted things from her, so they kind of tolerated me. And um, she had another pretty friend named Renee, and, and Vicky got a good idea that uh, her and Renee were going to come over to my house and invite this guy, Ruben, who just the year before had thrown a basketball at my head, um, over to my house, and then we would just have a drinking party and have fun. And we played this um, game called President, or no, Asshole, right? Have, has anyone played that game? It's a drinking game, right? Okay, so I don't know all the rules, but this is what I remember of it. So... So you play cards and someone is the president and then someone is the asshole and then there are a bunch of people in between, right? And the president can tell the asshole to drink as much <laughs> um, as they want and the asshole always has to drink. So I don't know how that game works, but it's, it's fun for some people, right? Well, so, um, you know, I was like probably like 14 at the time. So. Um, my bully was the asshole and I was the president, right? So um, I made him drink and uh, he got drunk and, and I, I knew how to drink, you know, at that age. You know, I just, I just did. I already knew. And, and he drank and he threw up and on the girl he likes, leg. <laughs> and then he was too drunk to go home and so he had to take off his pants and sleep on my floor and he never bullied me again, you know. Um, but I learned something from that experience. <laughs> I learned something from that experience, you know, that, that um, you know, drugs and alcohol also made me feel powerful, right? And, and what I struggle with as an alcoholic is powerlessness and really understanding that idea. But I thought I had some kind of power, um, a false sense of power, and it, it was aided by that lifestyle. Um, Again, you know, I was very experimental. I'm not going to go into my drunkalog um, too much. I will tell you that I drank and used everything. <laughs> my friend Missy is here. She, um, <laughs> I just caught her. Uh, so about Missy, uh, <laughs> she's been one of my best friends for 20 years, but she just recently celebrated one year sober. So, you know. But yeah, it was pretty experimental, and Missy can tell you about it later. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so um, yeah, it, it wasn't fabulous either. It was um, pretty sad. So right before I came in here, I was in my late 20s, and, and I was a maintenance alcoholic. Um, I drank 24 hours a day. I drank at night to go back to bed when I would wake up because I had, you know, the shakes, um, like I do now. Um, <laughs> um, and um, I would call Miss, and, and when, I, when I would wake up and, and say, I don't have any more alcohol, you know, this kind of thing. Um, and, and I was sad all the time. I was depressed. And even when I wasn't projecting that, I was, I was walled off from everybody, you know. I had friends. It was weird because... I was able to assemble friendships, but I was still I was still walled off, you know. And I always thought that they had something that I didn't have, 
you know, um, that aloneness like had revealed itself to me um, in the way I would say, oh, you know what, they're all, they're all getting families now, you know, they're all, you know, they seem to have the road map, um, they went to school, you know, I never went to college or anything like that, I didn't learn how to drive, you know, I just didn't know those things. Um, for some reason, right before I got um, sober, I was working in an office environment and a maintenance alcoholic, which is weird. Um, and um, let's see, I started to I, my performance started to take a hit at work, and people were starting to notice. Not necessarily that I was an alcoholic, but that my performance was slipping. So they started to put me on these like weird like plans, so that uh, punishment plans and. <laughs> Weird plans, the, the, the kind that you would normally get. Um, <laughs> and um, I, w I really wanted to get to the bottom of what was going on with me, and I was convinced that uh, I was, um, at first I was convinced that I had mono. Um, I thought that must be why I was sick all the time. Um, and then I went to the doctor, and the doctor said I did not have mono. And during the intake, and this is a true, this is a crazy story. It's true. I'm and during the intake. I'm like, um, I'm drunk. <laughs> it's in the morning before work, and the doctor asked me why I drank all the time, and I really wasn't ready for that question. And I said, the sun. <laughs> <laughs> and what I meant was that when I woke up in the mornings, I would drink on the side of my house in the sun, and I would smoke cigarettes, and I would feel like that would help me get my day started, but. It didn't come out like that. So um, <laughs> they put me in touch um, at work. They put me in touch with an EAP, and then it kind of came out that I was an um, alcoholic, and then I was depressed. And then the EAP put me in touch with a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist said, uh, we can't medicate you for any depression until you deal with alcohol. And so I went into rehab. Um, and I was doing this really weird in San, San Jose during the work week, but you know, so I was always carrying like a rolling suitcase with me. <laughs> and um, I said, oh, well, I'll go to rehab in San Francisco because that's where I s supposedly live. Um, and so I started doing that, and that was in 2007. Uh, I did not take to um, AA uh, right away. I did not take to recovery or any of it right away. It took me a while. Um, I started to immediately uh, start slipping, um, lying about it, concealing. I was not ready to get sober. I don't know that I w wanted anything to do with that. Um, I just wanted consequences to go away. I wanted to be able to maintain my job, you know, get a clean bill of health and then go back to my job and, and you know, and have this excuse. Um, and, you know, I was there for a long time with that, um, that mentality. Uh, so, let's see, uh, things that, my more about alcoholism happened, um, after I came in. So things I did, uh, that try, to try to stop drinking. So I took Anabuse, uh, for about two years until I learned how to drink on Anabuse. Um, <laughs> I drank mouthwash, um, 
my drinking got really bad after um, after I, I started relapsing because you know you get that head full of AA and it just becomes too much. It just because you know that you're hurting yourself. That's that was my experience. You know, at that point there, you know, it was like I already knew you had already pulled the curtain. So um, what else did I do? I tried to sell drugs. I tried to do marijuana maintenance. Anything to kind of keep my foot um, into the other world um, and then still try to be in rehab. It just didn't work. So um, I didn't, I wasn't prone because I was a maintenance alcoholic. I wasn't um, prone to blackouts, but after when I started relapsing or slipping or just continuing to drink, um, <laughs> I started to have blackouts and um, I had really, um, really bad situations where um, I was urinating in very inappropriate places. Um, <laughs> like uh, like um, out my apartment door, like into the hallway that everyone shares. <laughs> and in our pantry when I had guests over. And um, for some reason that was enough um, to, to make me reconsider my actions. And I started to work with the sponsor at that point. And that was, uh, that was great. Um, this was in late summer of 2008, so it had already been coming around for about a year and a half at that point. And um, I'd already been to Living Sober twice at that point. Uh, my first uh, impressions of Living Sober the first year was that it was amazing, you know. Uh, I really only remember the musical, but I thought it was so strange that I saw people that I was in meetings with in a musical. I thought that was really like, wow, you know. <laughs> But I was a newcomer. The next year in 2008, I came to Living Sober and I even volunteered at the raffle table. Um, and then on Saturday night at the Saturday meeting, I drank before it and then still went. And I remember this feeling of like humiliation, like, you know, because the lowest at the countdown meeting that they have on Saturdays is one day. And I couldn't stand up for that. Um, and I was sitting in the overflow room, just kind of like, you know. Uh, so, um, anyway, so bringing you back to current, so in 2008, August of 2008, I started to work a program. Um, and I started to do fellowship, meet people, um, open up a little bit, uh, take some commitments, stay after the meeting, do, you know, like some of the things that we do. And it started to work for me. Um, things started to change. Um, in about January of that year, I got sick, I had a cold, and you know, starting to, to work on my relationship with my mother, we were very estranged, it was cold and distant to her. I didn't like to look at her, um, and it was weird because I, you know, I had lived with her in my 20s for a period of time, and, and I, you know, she, we were working on things, because I was getting better, and uh, she was, trying her best to take care of me, and she, she, she was sad that I had a cold, and so she bought me um, all this medication. She got really co, and she bought me all, everything that she could buy, and one of the things that she bought was Robitussin. Um, and, you know, I just realized this just now. I can't believe I just realized this just now, but I remember I was, I was, I, I took that normally um, for my cold, and um, I was talking with Missy on the phone, actually. And I remember I, I sat up really quickly, and um, I felt high. And I was like, oh, you know, like, here's this out. You know, like, here's this thing. And Robitussin is not alcohol. You know, it's like, 
It's like some weird psychedelic thing. Um, <laughs> but I was like, oh, there's this out. And I took it normally for, for a little while, actually for that whole cold. But then a few like weeks or months later, yeah, months uh, in about April of that year, um, I got a cold again. And the only thing that I bought for myself was Robitussin. And um, at first, again, taking it normally, and then within a very short time, um, I was drinking eight bottles a day. And, um, you know, I, I learned a lot about my, how the disease works for me uh, from that experience, you know, because I had never even done Robitussin because I was doing regular drugs. Um, and, <laughs> and so when I... But I realized that that's not, you know, my alcoholism was not necessarily just the alcohol. You know, I definitely have... Uh, I'll get that phenomenon of craving if I drink, but it wasn't just about the alcohol, and I saw how fast that, that took over, and um, I, was, I was so afraid that, you know, um, that if I continued to, to take this Robitussin every day, that I would drink, actually, you know, um, because I knew that that was, that was going to be game over for me. But I kept it up for a while. Um, all spring, I would go to meetings high on Robitussin, and... Um, think I'm getting away with something, but I was getting these really morbid thoughts, constant thoughts about death, and, and um, so what ended up happening? Um, Michael Jackson died. Um, in the, and that's true. Um, when, when he died, when he died, <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, it was it was around Pride in two thousand nine when he died, and um, and I so uh, I was you know just a hallucinating hot mess alcoholic trying to go to AA and feeding uh, fighting a depression, you know, and um, I, I was emotional about everything. I was crying all the time, um, and uh, I was hiding this relapse. You know, I was trying to get away with something, and uh, I remember my last use was on July 2nd um, of 2009. Um, I was watching Michael Jackson videos and the miniseries and that whole thing that was going on, and, and my sponsor contacted me, and he said, oh, you know what, Living Sober tomorrow is I'm speaking um, at, one of the, at one of the workshops for Strain of Pen and Tongue in the morning. And he was like, you should come. <laughs> It was like, I was in San Jose at the time. I'm like, oh, you know, one of the consequences of Robitussin is you can't see. So I'm like squinting at, I'm squinting at a screen like, okay, I'll come. And um, so I said, I'll come to Living Sober. I had already been a few times, so I knew what I, what I was in store for. So I wasn't going to try to get away with anything there. The next morning I get on BART, and I'm headed towards San Francisco, and I'm sitting on BART, and I am just at my jumping off place. Um, I'm going to read about the jumping off place because I've been hearing that a lot at meetings recently, and I was like, that's exactly how it was for me. So I'm going to read the whole paragraph. The first part of the paragraph is not as pertinent, but I'm sitting on this bus, or I'm sitting on BART, sitting there, I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I just want to die. 
I don't, I don't even want to try again. I don't want to, I don't want to do anything. I just want to die. I just can't face it. I know I'm going to go to this conference. I'm going to see all these people and it's just going to be hell again. And I've been here for three years and nothing is changing for me. So it says in the book, now and then a serious drinker being dry at the moment says, I don't miss it at all. Feel better, work better, having a better time. As ex-problem drinkers, we smile at such a sally. We know our friend is like a boy whistling in the dark to keep his, up his spirits. He fools himself. Inwardly, he would give anything to take half a dozen drinks and get away with them. He will presently try the old game again, for he isn't happy about his sobriety. He cannot picture life without alcohol. Someday, he will be unable to imagine life either with alcohol or without it. Then he will know loneliness as such few... Uh, as such as few do, he will be at the jumping off place. He will wish for the end. Um, and that was what I was experiencing that day, you know, because I was just right there on limbo. You know, I didn't want to get sober. I didn't want to stay sober. Um, and I didn't want to use anymore. I didn't want to drink. And it was terrible. Um, so I saw my sponsor do his little thing and then um, went home immediately. Um, that was in the morning. And uh, uh, slept all day, went to my home group that Friday night. Um, and then the next day, my sponsor, uh, at that time, he, his birthday is July 4th, so he wanted to have a little birthday party at uh, the, the Cheesecake Factory. Went and did that um, with Kent, who's sitting over there. And, um, and then afterwards, we went to the, the countdown meeting to do the thing that everybody was doing back then. You know, back then it was like um, a thousand people. So it was like a huge room. And I'm sitting here with like two days sober, sweaty, nervous, kind of like I am now, but it's for a different reason. And I'm like, oh my God, this is just like hell on earth. <laughs> and we go into this big, big meeting. I actually get separated from my sponsor and he had another friend. They went in the back and I was sitting up in the front with Kent and I'm just sitting there sweating, hiding this secret. You know, by that point I've started to get to know people. So I'm like, I don't want them to find out. And I know what this is about. I've been at enough, you know, living sober to get an idea of what this countdown meeting is going to be like. And so, um, you know, for those of you who have not been, they usually start with the Al-Anon speaker. And uh, I was sitting there listening to the Al-Anon speaker that night, and the Al-Anon speaker um, says towards the end of his share, he starts detailing this thing that he had written, um, really about what I, I just actually re-listened to it this week. It was about miracles. Um, it was, and he was saying that the miracles were in um, an old man who sits next to him on a bus who is sharing, uh, sharing uh, stories with him, or like a little child who's like looking up and then ducking, ducking her face and then peeking back, um, or a man, or that, that man who unburdens himself to him who's at the depths and wanting to, um, wanting to commit suicide. Well, what I heard was that this was all taking place on a bus. Um, contemplating suicide. <laughs> So I, you know, like, you know, you go to enough meetings and every once in a while you hear something and be like, that was for me, you know? And so I'm like, so afterwards, we have a little intermission before we do a countdown and I actually followed him out and this was at the Grand Hyatt and they 
like you went all the way down in hell. Like it was so many floors down. I'm crying. Um, I'm, I'm like, I'm not just crying, I'm losing it actually. Um, I'm, I'm crying so hard and I'm like grab him and I tell him, I say, thank you for your share, you know. Um, but uh, do you have a copy of what you wrote? Because I'm that boy who wants to commit suicide. Um, and I remember that he, you know, there are a lot of appropriate reactions there, but I remember what he did was that he grabbed me in really close and he held me so tight and he said, um, you will have a life beyond your wildest dreams. Now, any response really would have been appropriate. He could have told me to keep coming back, but I'm so glad that he didn't because um, that actually came true for me in the moment, right? Because, you know, I had grown up fending for myself um, and really walled off from people and thinking I was too cool and not willing to open up to people. And, and I really needed to know that one time that I was going to ask for help, that someone was going to be on the other end of that. And that was that moment, I guess. So, um, so that happened, and then we went back into the meeting, and I'm sitting there, and we're about to do the countdown, and I'm like, what am I going to do? <laughs> what am I going to do? You know, my sponsor doesn't even know I relapsed, you know. Um, he thinks I have 10 months. And um, I'm sitting there, and, uh, you know, of course, it's got to be the most, like, tense experience ever because they start off at, like, 50, and they're counting down one year at a time. <laughs> And I have two days. So I'm sitting there, like sweating, not sure if I'm going to get up. I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and then finally, at 30 days, they say, everyone who has 30 days or less, please come join us on the stage. And I like just, I, couldn't, I didn't even look up. I just like jumped up on the stage. And I got up on the stage, and I was just crying. And I remember when I got up on the stage, they are, first they start counting down from 30 days, 29 days, 28 days. And uh, my sponsor would later tell me, who was out there wondering, what the hell is he doing up there? <laughs> and and I, was, I was crying. I had my face down like this. And um, there was this guy named uh, Terry, Terry M. who was, there was an overflow room, so he had a camera. And he knew me because we used to hang out. So he was standing right underneath me going like this. And I'm crying like this. And I don't know what that is. Like, I have no idea if they're filming this, you know, of like. <laughs> and, and we get down to it. And then when they get to two days, I just like raise my hand. And I was just crying. Um, and some old timer tried to hand me the big book. And I actually politely declined it. And I said, I had one. <laughs> I did. I, I still don't have that big book. <laughs> I just have to have one. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, I remember when walking up to this stage, there was this person from my rehab who was still in the audience who had just re relapsed too, and I knew about it. And he was sitting there being like, <laughs> you know, watching me go up there. <laughs> um, I'm so glad I did, you know, because, um, you know, I, I mentioned the jumping off place earlier, but that's really the turning point for me, um, asking his protection and care. You know, afterwards, uh, my sponsor, he met me outside. He told me, you know, this is no longer about the, um, the first step, right? You just, you just went through that. So this is about the second step. This is about believing that 
you know, if you do what we suggest, that it will work for you. Um, this is about believing if you take your medication, it will work for you. Um, and I started to do that. The first suggestions that he I'm in the program for three years was that all I had to do was take a shower, uh, make my bed, brush my teeth, go to a meeting, and leave that message about it. You know, I didn't have anything to do, and I was like, wow, you know, three years, and that's, that's just, we're keeping it real simple, and that's what I needed. Um, now, two months later, on September 12th of 2009, I was at a meeting, and I heard, uh, is Kenny here? Okay. I wouldn't be shocked if he wasn't here. Um, <laughs> I heard Kenny stand up and make an announcement at a meeting about something for Living Sober, which I bet many of you have <laughs> come to something because you heard Kenny make an announcement. <laughs> um, so I really had no idea what that was, but you know, um, I was like, I was feeling really connected to the event from after that experience, and I said, "Oh, I'll go, go see what that's about." Um, and I thought it was to hand out like flyers or something. I had no idea how any of this works. And I went, and um, I remember the next day on September 13th, 2009, which was my birthday, my biological birthday. I had just over 60 days sober. I went to whatever it was that he was announcing, and it was to find a fundraising co-chair for Living Sober. And no one else attends that. You know, no one else came. <laughs> it was very predatory. I'm not just kidding. Um, so yeah, I walked in, and it was, I'll, I'll never forget, it was like, it was like a panel. It was like um, Alejandro D., um, Charles L., um, Kenny, and then Ramona, um, who has passed, we were just sitting there waiting for like a victim, right? Um, <laughs> and, and I walked in and I was like, I'm here for whatever. And they said, oh, we're looking for a fundraising co-chair. And I was like, I, you know, coming around and being in the program for some point, especially then, that's, this was before like we had like our local clubhouse, the Castro Country Club was throwing a lot of events. Living Sober events were really known. and. And I knew who the fundraising co-chairs were, even though I didn't know much about Living Sober because they had to make announcements. They were, always post they were always hosting these drag shows and all this stuff. And I was like, are you sure? Like, you know, like, because really, I'm not even sure that I like AA, you know. Um, <laughs> and I, I was like, I can do it, I think. But, you know, I hadn't, at that point, I had lost my job. You know, I hadn't worked in a while. I hadn't done anything. And they were like, yeah, you can do it. Mm -hmm. You can do it. <laughs> but that, that is exactly what I did. Um, that, is what, that, was a, that was a huge shift for me in sobriety. Oh, my God, that was a huge shift. And I remember because that happened on my birthday, the way that I, you know, I had already started changing a little bit, so I was like, oh, my God, this must be a gift. You know, this is my birthday gift. <laughs> but, you know, like whatever works, you know, I held on to it. Got it. Okay, <laughs> so uh, I held on to it like crazy. So I'm gonna zoom through the rest because I, I want you to, I wanna get to today, but I am gonna tell you some of my favorite memories um, from that first year because they were really impactful to me. So on the second fundraiser that I ever threw was um, um, this 
gratitude dinner. It wasn't a Thanksgiving dinner because we didn't want to be offensive to anyone. So it was a gratitude dinner. And we had like a turkey cook-off and um, I was really excited about it. It was my idea and, and I knew it was not going to be successful and that no one was talking about it and I was sad and I had just a little bit more than 90 days. And I was like, oh my God, no one's going to come. I'm overwhelmed. I'm like scared. I start I stopped going to meetings, you know, I'm like, <laughs> I, I, I'm like hiding from people. Um, I'm like, you know, just a little bit more than 90 days. And then um, I think someone t- ended up telling Alejandro that I was doing that. And he called me and he left me a message and he said, you, I saw the call. I was laying on a couch with food around me. And like, I saw the call <laughs> and he said, I answered, or I didn't answer the phone, I let it roll to voicemail. And he said, you know what? Um, He said, yeah, I heard about what you're doing, and, you know, I just want you to know that that our only job is to be of service. And um, that we just, you know, we just show up, and whatever happens, happens, you know. And that, that, that you've already done all the footwork, you know. And I remember um, that was so impactful. I still use that at work. I still use that. Today, when I talk to Ken on the phone, you know, I'm in a different version of that. That is my third step. You know, I learned to practice the third step from that one call because then we did have the event and it did fail. And, um, <laughs> but, but what did happen was there was this lady there and she was like, can I sing some opera or something like that? You know, and it was like, sure, whatever. You know, like we're just like eating turkey. It's not a whole bunch of people here. And she got up and she started singing and everyone just got silent and it was like the most beautiful thing ever. And it was like, oh, I get it. You know, it is not about like what I thought it was supposed to be or how I really wanted it or where I put my focus into. It was really about what is and that I was present for it. And I still remember that that opera singing so much. It was just like emblazoned in my mind. And that was what the night was about. It wasn't about money that night. You know, it wasn't about Turkey. Um, okay, I know. I know. We're gonna we're gonna cut it, um, and I'm gonna do one more because I mean, there's no more appropriate place to talk about living sober things than at living sober. So um, I want to tell you how how I conceived my fourth step. They were through these fundraisers. And by the way, for anyone questioning, I have worked the steps multiple times, you know. But um, my fourth step came at my very favorite of the fundraisers that year, which was. <laughs> which was the rummage sale. Um, one of my, uh, me and my mom are um, horrible hoarders. And um, we, and, you know, it's just a symptom of the disease. Uh, uh, and we, my mom had this storage unit that she had from a failed business when she had her like mental breakdown when I was young. And it had all these old hats in it. And this was a huge deal to her. Um, she used to use it as like this arguing point, like we have the storage unit and you never help to clean it, you know, like, and like, and I would get mad, like, mom, Jesus Christ, you know, like this was when I was drinking, right? So it was like this weapon. And um, I knew we were going to do this rummage sale and I started to get healthy and I started to open up to my mom and I said, you know what, um, how about we just go to the storage unit and we take everything, 
and we bring it to that rummage sale. And then she was like resistant at first, but then she opened up to the idea because she started to see that it was changing and it was really into these things. So I said, okay, let's do that. And we loaded up this van and then we brought everything to the rummage sale. And I put her on my committee too. It was like, okay, you're gonna work this rummage sale. And you know, like, it was the most beautiful day, you know, like all those things, it was a hat store that she used to own and, and I used to work at that hat store at 13, like selling hats, like by myself, you know, like I knew all the inventory there and all these, you know, what happened was in front of the country club and all these drag queens would come and they would buy the hats and they took them and we had a disco ball that was at that store and then I donated it to the club, which it used to hang in the Castro Country Club. Um, and my mom hung out and she met all the people that I was working with on Living Sober and, and you know, that was, you know, I learned a lot about the fourth step about really what, what was at stake by holding on to everything. And then I learned kind of more like what was up for grabs. I see that X, that's an X, Hollywood Squares. I'm gonna end. Um, what, was, what was up for grabs by letting go? Um, and, you know, my mom and my relationship has changed ever since. I'm going to give it 30 seconds, um, and I'm sorry I ran out of time. Um, never done this before. So um, today, uh, life is great. Um, I have been around the world. Um, I have um, been with Living Sober for eight years, and this may be my last year, but I've been with Living Sober for eight continuous years, because why not? I'm very generous uh, with my work at Living Sober because I, I perceive that it did its part in saving my life. I love that the banner uh, for 78 is here because that was the year I was born. So I think that I was probably the first chair that was born after Living Sober started. You know, So the Living Sober, just that idea was saving lives you know, that weren't even born or conceived yet is amazing in our community. Um, I, you know, um, I have a happy, humble life. I, I, I now the source, the, the, the true spirit of my service is sponsees. Um, that is really where, where it's at for me. Those, those people have changed my life. Um, I'm, it is such an honor to be here. Um, thank you so much.